What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1 where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. What is Crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, hijacking the introduction from my fantastic co-host, Adam Frommel. We have a lot to get to today, as usual. We're going to talk some finals, maybe a little bit of Knicks, and then after Adam and I are done talking, I have pulled Tara Bowen Biggs out of quasi-retirement or hiatusment, whatever you want to call it. She is the uh, co-host of a We Have a Take podcast, which is currently on hiatus. You can follow them over there, though, at We Have a Take, spelled exactly as it sounds. Um, we're going to talk Blazers with her, but first, Adam and I are going to talk about a bunch of different things that are going on in the NBA Finals, and again, as I alluded to before, some New York Knicks. Before we dive in, though, just need to shout out our sponsors this week, DoorDash and Bet Online. We thank them. You'll be hearing from them in just a moment, and without them, our podcast would not be possible. And as ever, a quick reminder to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us wherever you're getting your podcast, but most especially, and whether or not you're using it on iTunes, where whenever those numbers go up, whenever we get a different review, it helps us out a ton. So please continue doing that. Adam, I don't know why it feels like it's been forever since I podcasted with you when it's maybe been a week, if that, but I miss you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. And my explanation there is that a week in 2020 feels like at least a month. You know, I I routinely am amazed by how much news we can pack into two days. So I I think that's probably why. Like, it hasn't been that long, but it's also been an eternity. That's a really good point with it, too. I thought it maybe was because I've been recording the, the team stuff. And so when it feels like I'm jamming more podcasts than usual that are just in the clip into one week. But I think 2020 is probably the more accurate reason why it feels like it's been a minute because every minute feels like an eternity this year but on to the finals where the lakers are now up three to one on the heat i would say as a general observation like if this thing ends in five games and game five will be played on on friday depending on when you're listening to this which should be tomorrow or maybe it's today if you're listening to this on friday maybe it's already happened and you're listening to this and the and hearing us talk about outdated stuff. I would say, though, relative to what this series could end up being, where I think a lot of people expect the Lakers to win in five, it's at least been watchable. And, like, we've had the injuries to Dragic, and you had Bam Adebayo miss two games as well. But, like, the games, for the most part, have been pretty pretty exciting. They've started to feel more and more like finals games as the series has progressed a little bit. Like, just the, the level of chippiness going up by a degree and the the games having more intensity and more of like that palpable feel of stakes. 
I think that, that, that that's all been really important. But it also seems like the Lakers kind of know that this is their title to lose and that they aren't going to lose it and that they took Miami's best shot in game three and came back and, and won a, a, a fairly tight but never really felt like that in doubt game four even while they like didn't seem to be playing with full effort the whole game. Like, is that fair to say? Uh, LeBron and AD definitely have like an on again, off again relationship with the first half. It feels like at least over the past two games. Yeah. Like the six turnovers or I think it was five turnovers in the first half for LeBron. And so many of them were just immensely sloppy. And I just, I can't get the, the, the last sequence of the first half out of my head where LeBron just like decided that he had absolutely zero interest in boxing out for a defensive rebound, which to be fair, like he normally doesn't have much interest in doing that. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he took the inbounds pass with like 3.5 seconds left. Didn't make any attempt to dribble up the court or like heave up a a full court or half court shot at the buzzer. Like it's such a big pet peeve of mine. And it, it was kind of like indicative of the, the on and off, energy levels that you mentioned because I think that's been one of the big storylines of the finals is like you know when when they do flip that switch they're virtually unstoppable and unguardable uh but that that switch hasn't always been flipped and it's allowed Miami to at least stay in it and and add some level of drama yeah and I'm just when you're watching these games and let's maybe look specifically at what's at game five what is there like what is the pathway to Miami winning that one? Where is it just a bigger game from Jimmy Butler? And I don't know really how you. I don't want to say I don't know how he has a bigger game, but I don't want to discredit anything he did in Game Four because I felt more so like the Lakers' defense. He also looked like he might have been a little bit gassed. I also feel like I'm not trying to Ben Simmons this, but like he needs to he needs to shoot threes. That's like the biggest thing. Like if you're gonna sag off down into the paint when he goes around a screen, like he's got to take that shot. And we saw him take and make those shots in earlier playoff series, as well as that game three masterpiece. And that's that's the answer right there is that he's got to score 40 and set up his teammates. Yeah, and look, that's tough. And there's, you know, to finally get like a good performance from Duncan Robinson for them, who felt like he was sort of just laying bricks this series, um, that ends up being huge. Even Tyler Hero, where uh, he hit some big shots and doesn't have the most efficient night. I just when you look at like what this team could potentially like do, like what they could improve upon, it's just that the talent deficit just feels so stark at this point. And it's, and it's not, it's, it's not a matter of even the supporting cast, right? I think the Lakers, like, you know, you and I talked about this briefly the other night. They can't consistently count on a two or three players every night, but they can count on getting two or three players every night. And I know that's a line that was at a piece that you ended up enjoying for mine. But like, I like, it's actually true. Whereas in game four, it was KCP five point burst down the stretch of um, game four to, to really, you know, Anthony Davis had the three point dagger, but KCP like increases the lead from two to seven. And that ends up being big for the Lakers. Even a matter of Rondo, who doesn't make a shot until this point, but the Heat are playing him for a pass. Uh, like, uh, and that's, that's what you should do with Rondo. And he scores a layup off a drive. And so they have these guys hitting big buckets, but you can still look at Miami supporting cast and say, well, they're clearly better. It's just the top end talent here. Like even with Jimmy Butler playing at a super Nova level and look, he there, it felt like he could have done more on offense and the three, three point attempts he had in game four, like they just felt like forced. Um, and they all, I think they all came like later in the game too. So he still almost went for a triple double. He had 22, 10 
and nine, three steals, one block. Um, the assignments he's drawing on defense are just absolutely incredibly difficult. Maybe you can still expect more of him out of him on the offensive end, but like what else, like who else are you getting more from? I mean, Bam Adebayo, you know, he actually had a really good return game. If he's dealing with a shoulder or a neck strain, whatever, and that's been reported in so many different ways. Um, but he ends up doing pretty well on the offensive end. And like, I don't know that you can count on getting much better nights at this point from a Duncan Robinson or a Tyler hero. Maybe you get better shooting nights from Jay Crowder than two or seven, two of seven from three. Um, one of the things that stood out to me though, to wrap up my long rant is that there's just, I think people, I don't know if they underestimated it, but there was this assumption that Kendrick Nunn could replace some of what Goran Dragic does. And the drop off between Nunn and Dragic is just absolutely monstrous because the uh, above all else, like the shot making Dragic has been better overall. You had none was two of 11 in, in game four, but the chaos, the anarchy that Dragic creates when he's working off the dribble in the paint, even though he's really not the best finisher, but just the way he can work the corners or just work the, the kickouts and then look for his in-between game. Like losing that was huge. And he was the Miami second or third or, and sometimes best player throughout the playoffs. And there was probably pretty much just no overcoming that. And so I'm curious as to see what if, if you were to finish this sentence after everything I say, the Lakers win up the Lakers, the, the Heat win game five, if what? What's the one thing that you think needs to happen for, for them to force a game six? Yeah, I mean, there are two different paths. One is similar to game three, where Jimmy Butler just goes kaboom and thoroughly outplays everyone on the court, which is possible. And the second, and I think kind of more unlikely scenario, is that you get simultaneous detonations from all of the role players. We've talked a lot about Miami's depth and how important that is to their success, but it's more about a floor than a ceiling with their non-star players. If you look at the rotation that they used in Game 4 without Goran Dragic available, and kudos to him for getting on the court and trying to push through. I, I'm sure so many of us have seen that video of him like fighting back tears after just trying to work through that, that foot injury um, and, and you know obviously wasn't able to do so, and, and credit to him for at least trying. But the starting lineup, Jimmy Butler, Tyler Hero, Jay Crowder, Bam Adebayo, and Duncan Robinson, we pretty much know what we're going to get there. So if we're going down this ladder path, you have to have another similar game from Tyler Hero where he's taking and making tough shots. You have to have Duncan Robinson continuing to hit three-pointers um, and, and drawing so much attention off the ball. But where else are you getting those contributions from? If you're, if you're counting on an offensive explosion from Kelly Olynyk, okay, but that means he's going to be on the court attempting to play Matador to Anthony Davis more frequently. Andre Iguodala isn't going to give you anything on offense aside from the occasional spot up three, and he's virtually unplayable on offense if Jimmy Butler isn't being more aggressive as a shooter. And the only other option is Kendrick Nunn, who does not look like he belongs on this stage. So I just, I mean, beyond that, like if you go deeper into the rotation, then you're looking at Derek Jones Jr. or Myers Leonard or Solomon Hill. Maybe Udonis Haslam gets on the court for once, which he has not to this point in the playoffs. Like I just, I don't know where those options are which is why I think the answer has to be that you just simultaneously see elevated play from everyone. Yeah. I think you make a great point about Iguodala there where Jim, like having Bam Adebayo back, like that sort of might, it doesn't hurt the heat because Bam Adebayo is so good. So I'm not trying to say that, but like it, since he's going to occupy a similar space to where Jimmy Butler wants to get to, since the in-between game has been such a big part of Jimmy Butler's success, that's already kind of putting strain on the offense. And if you throw Andre Iguodala in there, it, it creates other problems. And then look, even, and the heat started the game uh, doing a great job on, on Anthony Davis. 
if you're going to continue to front him and to be that aggressive defending him, like you're going to have guys get in foul trouble. We kind of saw it with Duncan Robinson ended with five fouls. You had Jay Crowder and Bam Adebayo with, with four. I guess those were never in traditional foul trouble, but it, it just makes me wonder. Anthony Davis had a good game in game four, but like he is capable of playing so much better. And so like, what if um, that defensive model against him just really doesn't sustain? And we saw it kind of, start to crack um, later in, in the second half for him. And and even LeBron, just you already mentioned with the turnovers in the first half, he can have a better game. Like he's, his ball protection has been terrible over the past two games. And yet the Lakers are one and one in those scenarios. And he really, he turned it on in the, in the second half. He had 20 points and four assists in the second half alone. He hit some um, big three pointers. And when you have him and Anthony Davis hitting three pointers, um, they were combined four of nine from deep, which is like not absurd volume, but it's also like, oh, they're going to shoot better than 40% from three between them on multiple attempts. That ends up being a huge deal, which is the other thing that stands out to me is that this isn't Jimmy Butler's fault alone, but the Heat have finished as a net minus from the three-point arc in every single game this series. And I just don't know if that can happen against a Lakers team and then you can expect to win. You're not going to handedly beat them in the free throw department every night. Even in game four, the Heat were a plus three from the foul line. We know you're not going to beat them on the offensive glass. Uh, and so I'm, there are other ways, obviously, that you can beat them. But, like, you need to win the three-point battle in, in, like, one of these games. And you would think a few of them to give yourself the best possible chance of winning. And whether that's a matter – some of it is a matter of volume. Um, the Lakers took seven more attempts in game four from beyond the arc than the Heat did. And they've just consistently taken more threes um, in this series. I don't want to oversimplify it by saying, like, hey, just, just – just, as Siri goes off by me, that they just need to up their three-point volume. But, like, they need to win the three-point battle in one of these games because I don't think you can really legitimately, even with Bam Adebayo, ever expect them to win the offensive rebounding battle, even if the Lakers' shooting is just so on point that there aren't a ton of second-chance opportunities for them to get after. And you would just think with the type of talent they have on this team that that's something that would be doable. Uh, but the Lakers' defense has won – made it tough on them. You know, there have been different points where they're um, you know, making sure that Duncan Robinson has run off the three-point line. He's had to get – he's caught the ball and faced just two – like two bodies or he's had to just move it incredibly quickly. I still just feel like to be this deep into the series and they haven't won a single night from the three-point line is a borderline red flag. Like not just something that we just like, oh, well, that's that's bizarre. It feels like that's something they needed to do consistently against the Lakers. My only concern with upping the three-point volume substantially is that the Lakers are far deadlier in transition offense than half-court offense. And when you're taking more threes, you're creating more long rebounding opportunities, which fosters more fast break opportunities, which kind of plays into the Lakers' offense's hands, which isn't great news either. So it's definitely like a little bit of a catch-22 there, because I agree that they they have to win that battle, but you're also setting yourself up. It's it's, it's a high-risk, high-reward strategy, but it is probably one that they have to take at this point. Well, and it's also, to point out flaws in what my own argument would be, is where's the extra volume coming from? I don't want to say right. everyone is absolutely tapped out, but like it sort of brings us back to Jimmy Butler, where Jay Crowder, seven attempts from three in Game 4. Duncan Robinson, six attempts. Tyler Hero, seven attempts. Um, Kelly only had two attempts in, in, in just over 12 minutes. Kendrick Nunn had six three-point attempts. You're not going to expect Andre Godala to be the one to up the volume. And so then all of a sudden it brings us back to, oh, it's it's Jimmy Butler again. And so if they're going to go under screens uh, and leave so much space but like between him and he's not going to have the same room to attack should, should Bam Adebayo be on the floor 
you, you have to start taking those shots. I don't know that that alone enough is enough to make the difference, but it feels like that could wind up being a singular difference difference maker looking at them needing to get one win to force that game six. Yeah. I mean, ultimately though, it does just, it, it feels like there's still this air of inevitability. Yeah, and I think that we, we really saw that come to life in, in, in the first half of game four. I was like, okay, LeBron's turned the ball over five times. Anthony Davis has been virtually invisible. The Lakers aren't playing particularly well. Well, shit, like they're still up at halftime. Like, what do we do? Yeah, that has to be demoralizing because you're shooting so poorly from three that where the Lakers don't even have the best half, and then they're still going to go in the locker room with a with a slight lead. Demoralizing is probably the wrong word for this Heat team, but that's still like not a great situation to be in. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. I can confirm this. I've been using DoorDash quite frequently throughout this pandemic that we're all trying to survive, mostly whenever I've just been jonesing for some wings. Could be the middle of the week. Could be looking for a cheat night. I just, I need my wings sometimes. Large orders. I'm talking like 50 wings or, or more, uh, and I can eat those pretty much in, in one sitting. So DoorDash has been great, whether I need uh, contactless delivery or even if I'm just placing a pickup order, they make that super easy as well. Just open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting. Choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, and Cheesecake Factory. But also, many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too. That's what I've been doing, uh, using all these local smaller businesses to, to get my chicken wing fix. DoorDash has them all. Love that, that they're all just located on there. And right now, get this, our listeners can get $5 off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. Big picture, I want to ask you two things. Um, Let's start with LeBron, and I'm not like the biggest fan of legacy talk, but I'm, I'm curious how... Like, does LeBron winning a fourth title impact his legacy meaningfully at all? Because where I'm sort of coming from this is like the only thing he's really in the macro competing for is catching Jordan. And if you don't have him as your greatest of all time now, does a fourth championship where it's still too short of Jordan and it comes where people are probably going to say, if not with an asterisk about like against an opponent, that probably wasn't the most dangerous one that you could have faced. I still think the Raptors might've given the Lakers more fits than the heat, uh, maybe even the Celtics too. Uh, even the Bucks that they made it this far or the regular season version of the Bucks or, or whatever. So like, does I, for me personally, and be, because LeBron might be my goat anyway, like I feel like I waffle going back and forth. Perhaps this is, like my bias kicking in, but like how much does it actually do for that, for LeBron in that discussion once, or I'll say if, and when he gets this fourth title, because I don't want to insult the heat too hard. I don't think it does much. It feels like it's, it's one of those situations and discussions where people are pretty set in their ways. Like if you, if you still have Jordan ahead of him at this point, I don't really know what's going to change your mind short of him reeling off like the next four titles or something um like we're still the 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 primary argument is always going to be 
that Jordan was six for six in the NBA finals. And that even if LeBron wins this one, he's four and six in the finals. I don't that that's not going to change. And if you already had LeBron ahead, like obviously like this is just going to further cement that. But I, I don't know that this is like a mind changing performance or anything. And that's not to discredit what he's doing, which is obviously unbelievable to still be playing at this high of a level at 35 years old in his 17th season and winning a title under these unprecedented circumstances. But I just, I don't know that it's going to convince anyone who wasn't already on board. There are going to be some people who are on the fence or who waffle about who the the greatest player of all time is. Um, I think both of us are are pretty close, if not in that category. Um, But yeah, I mean, like it's in no way, saying that this isn't an important title or that this doesn't meaningfully impact his legacy. But when the only thing left is him chasing the ghost that is Michael Jordan, like I just, I don't know what it does in that particular conversation. I think the one who it does the most for is actually Anthony Davis, who sort of had this absence of legacy or there was definitely stigmatized for his lack slash absence of playoff success. And this postseason push does a lot for him where it doesn't create an actual like postseason resume it's he has there's a real chance he'll win finals mvp i think he could go either way at this point to be honest with you i'm flipping between the two by the minute <laughs> and um i don't know if like if davis had like a better game three this might be over already just because of the way lebron has started the past two games but he could win finals mvp and like that ends up being huge for him because there's been this debate and I feel like it's happened in part because he just didn't, doesn't have, didn't have a ton of playoff success in New Orleans, excuse me, but also now he's a a member of the Lakers and the way he got to the Lakers, like it's going to create this, you know, organic level of increased scrutiny, but there's like this debate as to whether he can be the best player on a championship contender. And there are just two different schools of thought to it where it's like, the type of player who needs to be the best player in a championship contender does not align with who Anthony Davis is because you still, everything he does on defense, even when we've seen him hit his unassisted jumpers to hit these threes, like those are all big. There needs to be like that from scratch playmaking ingrained into the game and even more of the face up skill set than we, than we see from him. And that's just not him on the flip side though. If you're not going to loop him in that discussion, you're then saying that there are what five players who can be the absolute best player on a title contender. And so I feel like that's, you know, while we can debate the merits of our, is the term stardom, superstardom thrown around haphazardly, like that's absolutely fair, but that's almost too narrow a field. And I think what he has shown is that he might not be able to be a team's LeBron, but he can absolutely be the best player on a team that has already found its LeBron, which is huge because it means that said LeBron doesn't always need to play like pinnacle LeBron. And so this playoff push to me ends up being huge, not only for his resume, but also for the LA's future, because now it's like, I think you could, people were trying to talk themselves into, no, the Lakers were not underdogs. Like that, that whole, that whole notion was a sham. That, that was just a sham. There was like the closest they came to being underdogs where people were crapping all over their supporting cast. But they did consider like, you know, the, the super hot take artists were, could New Orleans have like a similar record to LA this year? Or would this would be a more failure outlook? What is the Lakers long-term trajectory? LeBron is going to be in his age 36 season next year, entering free agency in 2021. You have Anthony Davis, but you've mortgaged a, a fairly large portion of your future to get him. Like, does that guarantee you a lifeline 
post-LeBron or as LeBron actually enters a twilight insofar as he ever has one at this point. And I think the answer that we've seen this postseason, even though you still have LeBron playing at a high level, is that, yes, he's going to be that player and he's going to guarantee the Lakers a modicum of relevance, even if they were to scrap everything else around him. That's still a starting point, which is big in itself. I wholeheartedly agree. I think I think the biggest impact that this has is for the future convincing free agents to come join this Lakers team, knowing that even if LeBron falls off a cliff in terms of production or ends up retiring unexpectedly, that this is still a competitive organization just because of Anthony Davis's presence. Going into these playoffs, the number one postseason memory for Anthony Davis, I would wager, was game one of the 2015 opening round when Stephen Curry hit his eyes closed corner three-pointer to force overtime over Davis, who was closing out in that corner. I think that that was probably the most salient memory of Anthony Davis doing anything in the playoffs, and it wasn't positive, even though he had a fantastic series against Golden State that year. But now, like, there are so many game-sealing threes and huge defensive plays that he's made, and he's put himself in that finals MVP discussion. Like, yeah, the, the title is going to do wonders for his resume and for his historical legacy, and we're going to have conversations about how high he's going to end up ranking or even currently ranks on the all-time hierarchy of, of players. But more than that, I think it's a reputation changer in the present. I think that it, all of a sudden it, it adds legitimacy to this Lakers roster beyond LeBron James, which is important because they're set up to to continuously add more pieces. And as, as impressive as this, or I, I wouldn't say the whole supporting cast, but as you've said, the two or three players who can be found on any given night making consistent contributions. You know, as, as impressive as that has been, the, the cast is going to just get better around them. The, I, would, I would be very confident that the 2021-2022 Lakers are going to be a better team, as are the 2020-21 Lakers. Is it just uh, going to be the, the 2021 Lakers? Like, we're, we're done with that. I think I'm always going to call it by the two years just because it's convention at this point, but I don't know. I don't know. But regardless, like this is probably, the barring that drop-off from LeBron, this might be the worst Lakers team we see in the next few years. Yeah, the thing that's terrifying is if you give, and it's, it so rarely happens, like it's normally in the first year of him being there um, because you've gotten him with cap space, presumably, is that... you. But they don't. LeBron's teams don't really have like any flexibility. Where for them to have the non-taxpayer level exception this summer is absolutely huge. But it's also bigger because I would say if I had to guess, you're going to have like between 22 and 23 teams are going to have the same amount of money or less to go into free agency with. Like they're going to, there might even be might even be 24 to 25 teams, uh, depending on how these other teams structure. You know, the Heat are a good example. They can have cap space, but if they want to bring back Jay Crowder and Goran Dragic. They kind of don't have cap space. So that they're going to be on a level cap playing field with more than two thirds of the league, like that might open them up to some free agents they otherwise wouldn't have access to because the money's just equal in so many places. And look, because players might get squeezed in this free agency market, and I'm not going to advocate for this. We are both very much pro players getting paid. I don't care whether it's a superstar or, you know, shout out to Joe Kimonoa for getting his deal. I'm pro players getting paid. I know we analyze these things from a team's perspective, but this creates a window of opportunity for the Lakers where I feel like some players might say, well, you know, maybe I will play for the, the biannual exception for the Lakers. But, you know, like a Paul Millsap is a, maybe a good example. I don't know, you know, lineups with him, LeBron, and AD would be 
a bizarre, uh, incredible, excuse me, defensively. I don't know if he's the perfect fit, but he might be an example of someone who, well, I can get the non-taxpayers mid-level, or, or I could get the mini MLE, excuse me, or maybe the taxpayer or the non-taxpayers MLE, but I'm just going to go play with the Lakers to try and go get a, a chip. And like that's I'll what take this that one step for. further. Given the unprecedented circumstances here and how drastically the cap could fall in the wake of the pandemic forcing the hiatus and minimizing gate receipts and all that, like we could very well see someone like Danilo Gallinari taking a one-year small deal to play with the Lakers, win a title, and then re-enter free agency under more normal circumstances the following season. That's possible. I would think for, I think at that level where we're talking about, is he probably a top five name on the market? If you're looking at Van Fleet, I'm I'm not including Ingram or Anthony Davis just because they're not going anywhere. I think that that might be a sign and trade situation. They need to go. But again, I I don't know that we could rule it out because this, this off season feels like it's going to be so unpredictable. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at bet online. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to BetOnline today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at BetOnline.ag. That's Blue Wire, all one word. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. On that subject, and we will cover this at length when we actually do the Heat deep dive. So I don't want to get necessarily too far into it. And I also I don't want to write them off, but they're down three to one. Like, and, and Dragic is injured. Like, I'm just I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but it's worth talking about the bigger picture. I do wonder how this sort of impacts their uh, team building approach moving forward. And I know Pat Riley and his front office is basically going to act in the now and then they'll worry about figuring out the rest later, which there's definitely merit to that. But everyone's talked about how they want to be cap space players in 2021, but you have Dragic and Jerry Crowder coming up on free agency. Derek Jones Jr. as well, but his cap hold is nothing. I think this, the thought has been that they can sign them both to these huge one-year deals, but like, what if neither of those two are amenable to doing that? And so if you're the heat, like, are you still looking to prioritize cap space in the future after making the NBA finals this year, or you may be more inclined to like, let's say you are bringing Jay Crowder and Dragic back on whatever deals. Like, are you thinking about, or going to more give heavy consideration to then maybe entering the trade market for a player that's going to be on your books though in 2021, 2022, which would then impact your cap space when Giannis is available because there's all of a sudden like this. I don't, I don't know if it's a sense of urgency, but like you just made the NBA finals. And so it feels like your timeline is very much now. And if you are going to have cap space or you have the ability to get a, you know, if Dragic leaves and you have the ability to get Chris Paul, but he has money on the books in 2021, 2022, or even Drew Holiday, like the same situation. He's a player option. You don't know if he's going to come off the books. I'm wondering if they give more consideration basically to adding long-term money this summer. That took me a really long time to get there. I should have just started out by saying that. I don't think they will. Um, It wouldn't be the worst idea in the world, especially because Pat Riley is savvy enough that he could subsequently flip those contracts after the season and re-clear that cap space. But I just I think that Miami has too much confidence, and I I mean like too much to do that, not too much in general. Too much confidence in its player development ability and culture. I mean, if you look at this roster, even without Goran Dragic and Jay Crowder, like 
they can reasonably expect Bam Adebayo to get even better next year and enter the top 10 player discussion. Given what we've seen from Tyler Hero in this postseason, they can reasonably expect him to be even better next year and and reasonably replace Goran Dragic's minutes. Uh, there, there, there are those internal options, and they have so much talent already on the roster guaranteed for next season that I just I don't think that they need to make any desperation plays, especially because this is such a smart, intelligent organization from top to bottom that they're they're just they're too savvy to set themselves back, knowing how ridiculously loaded the 2021 free agency class is expected to be. My counterpoint to that would be the decision to offer contracts to Dion Waiters and James Johnson. And I actually think that they would give consideration to handing out long-term deals this summer because they're so confident in their ability to get off that money should they need to. And so it's, you know, I think most people would rule out a chase at Daniel Gallinari this summer if you're thinking they want to preserve cap space. I could absolutely see them trying, like, signing him to a three-year deal and then they'll figure out how to move him or, or someone else later if they need to. And then look, maybe it works out where he doesn't cost too much because as you've already mentioned, this market's going to be going to be absolutely bizarre. And the other thing on this too, is this is from Kevin O'Connor, the ringer Uh, people around the league believe that Miami is like the next destination for the, for the next disgruntled star. And I don't know that this necessarily need, they need to make the finals for this to happen because it's, it's Miami, but that's also something looming over all this is, uh, you know, I don't, there, they're interesting because I don't know that they have the asset firepower to get in the, the best conversations because I feel like Tyler Hero has almost become untouchable. And even the idea of trading Duncan Robinson feels sacrilegious at this point. Uh, but because they have those two players, they do have contracts they can use as filler. They can get into some interesting trade discussions if it gets to that point. Joel Embiid. He's looming out there. Uh, not with Bam Adebayo. No, thanks. I don't need Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid anywhere near this team. If it's Bradley Beal, um, even Oladipo, Drew Holiday, still like Chris Paul for this team. Um, two other things I wanted to ask you about. Kenny Atkinson interviewed with the Rockets this week um, for their head coaching position. This is per the Athletic. What do you think about, you know, we're not, I think we're both pretty much on the same page where we don't, we're not going to pretend to know like as much as coaches do and know about everything in a coach's arsenal, but knowing how he coached in Brooklyn, sort of what his style is, how would you feel about that fit in Houston if he ended up there? I'm not thrilled about that fit. I really like Kenny Atkinson. I think he did a phenomenal job and got the the short stick in, in Brooklyn. Um, but he is, he is at least from our perspective, he seems like more of a player development coach than a guy who's going to take a largely finished set in its way roster and then elevate its ceiling um i don't know that that he's the guy who's going to get james harden to play differently or to maximize the team around him and they don't have those young guys to really help blossom so it wouldn't be like a bad hiring because he is a great coach i just don't know that stylistically it makes as much sense I actually, so I agree with the perception of him. I think he would, this would actually be a good situation for him in a vacuum because one, his teams have overachieved defensively while by and large playing smaller a lot of the times. And so now you're throwing him into this situation. That seems perfect. Uh, The other thing for me is that his shot profile, the shot profile of his team aligns with how the Rockets want to play. And so I feel like that could make for an easier transition, but to your point, I don't know if he has like the cachet of like if it was a Ty Lu coming in or even like a Mike D'Antoni, just someone who's been there, done that. And so do you want to throw him 
into the situation where the Rockets have immediate title um, aspirations and you have James Harden, you have Russell Westbrook. I'm not saying those two are difficult to coach um, under D'Antoni anyway, especially with James Harden. I don't, th- I feel like it's just not talked about enough how, it, how much it seemed like they like liked and appreciated each other. So I wouldn't so much be worried about that, but because we haven't really seen like Brooklyn didn't give him the opportunity to shed that label of he's basically a developmental coach. It would be more of a dice roll, which is I, not an insult to be no. clear. But it would it does feel like this would be more of a dice roll than the Rockets have the the runway to take just because of where they are at. If it doesn't work out, like can you turn around and get rid of him quickly? It does feel like he should end up somewhere that has a more gradual timeline. But I would be functionally just looking at how he's coached with Brooklyn. Look, even the Nets have signed all those guys just off the you know out of the blue, like all, and they've come to Brooklyn and they've turned their career around. Like that's a testament to. Obviously, the you know Sean Marks and the front office finding them. It's definitely a testament to the players themselves. But like Kenny Atkinson and his staff was a part of that. And so when you're the Rockets and you don't have a ton of flexibility and you're going to be tasked with kind of finding these diamonds in the rough, maybe that makes you feel better. It still feels like it'd be more of a gamble for them than they should be willing to take at this point. I would respect the decision to hire him though if that's the route that they went. Totally agree. I mean, I still maintain like they're they're the perfect fit for this roster. It's. Um... What's his name? Um, Mike D'Antoni, I think. Um, the other thing I was going to talk to you about is this is from the New York Post. Uh, the Knicks, Leon Rose, while he's still keeping an eye on the Chris Paul situation in OKC, the Knicks would apparently prefer a trade to uh, a trade with the Pacers for Victor Oladipo as opposed to Chris Paul. What do you what do you make of that? <laughs> Just. No matter who is in the Knicks front office, the Knicks are going to Nick. I mean, like, the generous reading here is that they are worried about their financial flexibility down the road because of Chris Paul's onerous contract, or that they think that they're going to have to give up more to get Chris Paul than to get Victor Oladipo, who has one more year left on the books before he enters free agency. But, like, what the hell do the Knicks have to give up? You're not giving up Mitchell Robinson or RJ Barrett for either of these guys. So like beyond that, are there really untouchable players and assets on your roster? I just, I I have so much trouble understanding any rationale that leads you to believe that acquiring a, a guy with significant injury history, who, as we've talked about in previous episodes, has spent more time not functioning at a star level than at that all-star level that he briefly reached. And I hope he gets back there again, but like, Chris Paul is a is a demonstrated superstar coming off a fantastic all NBA caliber season at the position that you have not been able to fill in literal decades. So like sure, like this is the most Knicks news story of all time except for all the other most Knicks news stories of all time. I actually don't have a problem with the premise of their thinking where you would prefer Oladipo to Chris Paul. He's cheaper for now. He's younger. He has the injury history. For now. But I think you can but I think you can argue that if he hits, like he gives you more long term than a Chris Paul trade would. That being said, I'd be reticent to give up too much value for someone who's going to enter free agency at a time when right now you have cap space. And that runs counter to all the shots we've taken at the Knicks for failing to turn cap space into stars in the past. So if you have the opportunity to trade for someone who's a part of that class that you like, then yeah, you should go after him. Like you can't overpay for him. And I, I just I'd be worried that the Knicks give up too much for Chris Paul, who has another year left on his deal. Imagine what are they gonna give up for Victor Oladipo, who's a year out from free agency, could leave, or they could end up signing him outright without giving up anything. And so if look, if the right. opportunity is there, I'm not against it, but be, 
because the Knicks are involved, and I know it's a different front office, I wouldn't trust them not to overpay Indiana. And so if you're the Pacers, this feels like great news. And in what world should the Knicks have any confidence that they would be able to re-sign Victor Oladipo in free agency? You know what, it's not even... Like, that's, that's the biggest thing for me. It's like, he has one year left in his deal. Like, you're not going to make the playoffs even with Oladipo on your roster next year. And what motivation is he going to have to re-sign with your team aside from the money that he'll likely be, be able to get elsewhere in 2021 because everyone is hoarding cap space i think my one argument against that would be they you can obviously offer him more than any other team you'll have that fifth year carrot there to throw at him the other thing is i don't know like he's not a max contract formality to me at this point it doesn't seem like the pacers consider him one which is a big reason why we're here in the first place still neither he or Chris Paul aligns with what they should be trying to do, which is they have all these, it doesn't look like they have blue chip cornerstones, but like you have RJ Barrett, you have Mitchell Robinson, you have, uh, what is it? The number eight pick in this year's draft, like move forward, like re like rebuild, rebuild, rebuild. I I don't mind if they go out and get Paul, as long as they're not giving up that number eight pick Robinson or Barrett. Like if, if the thunder are basically like giving him away to get his contract off the books, and you're the Knicks, like, fine. Like, we're probably not going to make any huge free agent signings because that's what history has told us over the last few years and maybe even longer than that. And having a quality point guard is pretty integral to the development of the rest of the roster. Like, Mitchell Robinson's growth is ultimately going to be stunted because he does not have a player who is capable of making setup passes. RJ Barrett is overextended on the offensive end because they don't have a real point guard. And I think we've seen so many times in so many situations in this league that if you do not have a quality floor general, it's really hard for the other pieces to develop. So like from that perspective, I'm way more okay with them going to get Paul, trying to accelerate the timeline, and also trying to actually assist the development of players who they have failed to develop time and time again throughout this front office's tenure and the previous ones. Yeah, I just acquiring Chris Paul infers something about your immediate timeline. I don't know that he would be okay coming in and just, you know, steering a ship into the lottery for the sake of the development of players around him. And that's what would be the concern. I don't I'm actually not totally against them acquiring Chris Paul. I tend to fall in in your camp. Uh, maybe that's I'm just blinded by him making second team all NBA this year. But I I think if we're looking at this from just a more just removed like, you know, cold matter of fact perspective they shouldn't be going after either of these players unless the cost for an Oladipo is just so unbelievably low and you know that he's not even on the books next year if you want to keep him or if things go awry so if we're being honest though like neither of these two players should be where the Knicks are at like you would need to go if you want to acquire a star you need to go younger and like those types of players like when they're on just their second contracts you know those rookie extensions they don't typically become available and the problem that the Knicks run into, which is probably part of their dilemma if they're thirsty for stars, is more attractive packages can be built. If you include their own unprotected first moving forward, I guess that really like drives it up. But in terms of immediate prospects, you have Mitchell Robinson, and then you have R.J. Barrett. I think that's sort of the extent of what teams would get, of who teams would get excited about. At this point, I'm just prepared to say that whatever the Knicks end up doing, it was a bad decision. I'm, look, I'm going to try and give the new front office the benefit of the doubt, but the Tom Thibodeau hire did not uh, <laughs> it, it did not earn them a vote of confidence from me. But look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's more adaptive. Maybe this doesn't say anything about what they're trying to do. Uh, well, there'll be times to talk more about the Knicks, but that's the first time they've been in the news for a while. I just thought it was uh, just something worth touching upon. 
going to hijack the close here since we're just segueing into the second half of the pot. You're you're signaling to me. Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to talk about one more thing, and that is one of the most dominant teams that I have seen in a long time, the Seattle Storm. They closed out the WNBA Finals in a sweep over the Las Vegas Aces, and as good as Asia Wilson is, this Storm team is just utterly ridiculous, and it was an absolute pleasure to watch them. Brianna Stewart is amazing. Sue Bird is a legend and joined John Sally and Tim Duncan as one of only three basketball players to win titles in three different decades. And that's not even the end of their talent with Alicia Clark and Jewel Lloyd and Natasha Howard. This team went 18-4 and four in the regular season and then swept the Minnesota Lynx in the semifinals and the Aces in the finals. And we just need to give a big shout-out to them for completing what is one of the most impressive seasons we've seen in basketball in a long time. Two titles in the past three years for them, and I will say, I feel like Sue Bird and Megan Rapino are going to need a separate residence for their for their hardware at this point. Like we're getting there, right? Maybe even two of them. Two, yeah, that that seems fair. They probably already have the separate ones. What you're saying, they're going to need an extra one. Yeah, exactly. That'll do it for us talking. Uh, please again remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast, but especially on iTunes, whether or not you're on there. Now, though, let's get into talking some Portland Trailblazers with. We have a take, co-hosts, Tara Bowen Biggs. Tara, welcome back to the Hardwood Knox podcast, your third appearance. So you're, you're braving these waters for a third time. I, I'm, I super appreciate it. Thank you for coming back. How are you, how are you doing during these crazy, unfortunate, you throw any adjective in there that you want, really, <laughs> times? <laughs> well, um, I thank you so much for having me on again. I am so excited that you wanted to talk to me. I haven't been doing... Uh, podcasting lately I've, I'm on hiatus and so you may get more than you bargained for because it's been a while since I've talked at length to anybody about the Blazers uh, so thank you so much for having me doing okay you know like I'm still here that's kind of like my my weekly or my at work we have a morning check-in every morning and you know when we were in the middle of the fi- wildfires and nobody could leave their homes and you know just a few weeks ago the everyone in the morning was just like, I'm still here. And so that we're going to start from that. (laughs) And now I'm here to talk about basketball. So I'm excited. Yes. It feels, I feel so pointless reaching out to people to talk about basketball right now. I feel like I've told you this every time I've, I've done this, but I, it is, it is cathartic to talk about something so light and enjoyable at this point, particularly when the bubble has by and large gone so well, unless your name is Daniel house jr. You know, it is entertainment. Basketball is entertainment and it's like a huge business behind it that supports a lot of people. And we're finding like, you know, does a lot more than just entertain. But fundamentally, it's a game for us to talk about and enjoy. And it's the bubble, I agree, has been something that to help us take our I mean, we can't really take our minds off what's going on, but it gives us a little respite from like all the seriousness and the heaviness. And when they do bring up the more heavy and serious topics, it's kind of like within context and we're all kind of in it together. Right. That's what I think they've done a good job of not letting, you know, some of the gestures have been kind of empty, like the, the name, the stuff on the back of the jerseys, like that was just, and then having Black Lives Matter painted on the court is fine, but it was good that they did go beyond it. And then like the, the players, um, striking the the one game that they did in the playoffs of all times too to do that like that those were cool moments and so it felt like a nice like balance where it's like you didn't forget at any point what was going on in society but like it provided this escape and I think it's also at least for me um, as someone who likes to make jokes on Twitter and will continue to make jokes on Twitter 
I am probably a little bit more careful with what I say because now I'm thinking about like the players having been sequestered and it's like, well, what does that really do like to them emotionally, psychologically, that has to be draining and being famous or effectively a celebrity has to be that anyway. But this specific circumstance where you're ripping them out of their, their everyday lives where they're not seeing, you know, until later in the playoffs, the teams that remained like, you know, you didn't see like Kyle Lowry after he got eliminated from the playoffs, just like, well, now I get to see my kids at least. And so I think that it's also, you know, I've been able to empathize empathize with them more. And so maybe that's been a good lesson that comes out of all this as well. Yeah, I think, you know, 2020 has been something else. Um, and I don't, it's not all, everything's not going to be all like wine and roses on January 1st, 2021. But if anything that I could take positive out of 2020 is I think I it's made me much more self-reflective of, you know, what I'm doing, what I'm watching, the entertainment I'm consuming and how I feel about it, how I interact about it, how I appreciate it. So, you know, if, if a lot of us have can at least take that into the next season, into the next year, then, you know, I guess it's a small win in, you know, a, in a, in a difficult time. In, in a long line of losses. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but on the subject of the bubble, so what were your impressions of the the Blazers in the bubble? Like they kind of stole the show where everyone thought, well, Memphis is so far ahead, so you have to put them in the play in discussion. And then it's like the Pelicans just look so good on paper and their schedule, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but the Blazers, I won't say they came out of nowhere, but like they were just entertaining as hell in the bubble. Dame Willard is just my God. It has to, he's easily one of my five favorite players to watch um in the NBA. Was beforehand, but like just absolutely ridiculous and then be more specific though like the blazers in general in the bubble i'm wondering what you thought of them but then also just like uh nurkic's return um what how did you think that he looked while, while he was playing i mean you just said it entertainment wise the blazers were everything i could have asked for from the team that i love um they you know, starting off with Nurkic, the return of Nurkic, you know, I think when we talked back in April or whenever it was, we talked before, I think I mentioned one of the, uh, one of the things that I was really bummed about when the season was suspended is that Yusuf Nurkic was supposed to start the next game or was supposed to come back the next game. And so it was very disappointing that that had to, um, be put off. Um, but it turned out when he came back in the bubble, it was like, he hadn't even missed a beat in terms of how he played and what he did and what his presence meant to the floor. And just like watching him get his first dunk, it was just like, Oh, it was so good to cheer for him about basketball. Right. Cause for so long we've been sitting, you know, watching him be fun and funky on the sidelines or whatever, but to like see him do his thing that he was meant to do. Oh, it just, it felt so good. Um, you know, and when Nurkic is there and when he's doing everything that he does well, that just gives Damien that much more room to operate and that, you know, a whole other option that he didn't have for the entire year. So watching Damien go off was just a delight. And then, of course, I think we talked about him last time. My favorite Gary Trent Jr. story is just like Gary Trent Jr. just like made the season for me. There were some dark moments in the Blazer season, but Gary Trent Jr.'s rise uh, to become who I think, you know, he's going to be so much fun to watch. Uh, absolutely molten in the bubble for most of the time that he was there. I think like until the playoffs, he was shooting like a trillion percent 
from three. Yeah. Like it, I think it, that's what it was. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it might have been a little bit higher than that. Actually, I thought Nurkic was like there's stuff that like clearly like it felt like he was a little bit off on offensive timing, but the way he was moving in general, I was like every time like there were situations where Hassan Whiteside was playing instead of him and it felt like an active choice. I don't know if it was like a minutes limit they were worried about for Nurkic. I was like get Hassan Whiteside off the floor because I was so impressed with how Nurkic was moving that having him be so effective, it kind of just reinforced how important he is to the Blazers because when you look at really the, the West, it's going to get harder next year, if only because the Warriors should be in some form back. But also you have these like teams that are on the come up, like the Suns and the Pelicans, maybe the Grizzlies. And so Nurkic is like your ticket to ensuring when you have McCollum and Damian Lillard that you remain these playoff formalities next year that you were not this year because in large part of his absence. Yeah, Nurkic has more floor vision than Hassan Whiteside did, so he's a little, he's more of a creator. Um, and one thing that he did, like in the first like two or three games, like he added a rip through, and he was like, "We're like, oh, you're getting called for that now. That's cool." Like you know, he was getting other people called for fouls for doing a rip through, and we're like, "You're like seven feet tall. Who does that?" But okay, like not going to complain about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe it's easier for him to practice something like that because coming back from like compound fractures in his leg, like so, it's like, what are you doing? Like when you can't really move, maybe he was practicing on how to draw rip throughs. Yeah, I I don't know, but it was it was absolutely delightful. And the other thing that the Portland did is they did what they always do, which made every game a heart attack game. There was like not. <laughs> a single game that was like, Oh, this is clearly one way or the other. It was like right down to the wire, every single game, like traumatizing us in the way that we just love to be like traumatized in terms of like, we're going to get through this together. And we're all like blazer fans just are all closer because we're individually sequestered in our house, suffering through this, like, you know, nail biting endings to all of these games just to get these guys to the playoffs and maybe like people who cheer for different teams who've had more sustained longer runs into the playoffs year after year after year maybe they don't think that just making it to the playoffs was you know enough but it was a thrill and to be in the first ever playing game like and to flip the switch and end up the eighth seed instead of the ninth seed so we only they only had to play I mean just like all the teams playing every other night like I know they didn't have to travel but that is brutal you know every other night and then I was just like thinking like oh god if they lose this game and they have to play another game then they're gonna have to if they win it they're gonna have to turn right around go into the playoffs and move out of their hotel and it's yeah. like <laughs> and, and look I mean on top of that like it's not even just playing every other day, but like they didn't have like opportunities to rest guys down the stretch of games because as you said, every, it didn't like, yeah. Oh, you beat the Rockets, but like you played like the, the, the G league version of the Brooklyn Nets. And like that still went down to the wire. And I credit Brooklyn for that, but there was no easy wins for Portland. And then like, you're dealing with the stress of, Oh, is CJ McCollum's back going to dissipate at any point? Uh, I do, <laughs> I do think what this did for me reinforced because CJ McCollum's a very hard player to, if you're like sort of trying to understand him relative to other stars, it gets really difficult because there are moments last season where, if not most of the season, where Nurkic was just clearly Portland's second best player. But every time I watch him in the playoffs, 
the way that he's able to get his shot off and make so many of them, he might just be that player where his value increases so much in a postseason format. And so that's the, um, in general, was the takeaway that I was prepared to, to um, glean from the bubble in general, even under the weird circumstances. I'm just prepared to read more into postseason play than ever before. And now I'm looking at CJ McCollum, and I kind of been there um, last year as well. But like now I'm just here, and I'm like, that dude is so much more valuable to you in the postseason than he is the regular season. CJ is really valuable. He, you know, he every year he's always up there in terms of minutes played and also miles run. I mean, the guy is durable. And then when we found out that he was playing with like a broken bone in his back, it was just like, are you kidding? Okay. I mean, obviously he wouldn't have played if it was going to make it worse, but that couldn't have been good, you know, and it was... You know, just in terms of everything that the Blazers made, you know, did, there were so many, they just ticked every box in terms of entertainment. Like they had beef with Patrick Beverly. They had, you know, Olympic Mellow show up in the playoffs. You know, <laughs> they had, like Gary Trent Jr. had my favorite play of the, uh, definitely my favorite play of the whole Blazers bubble season. Um, they were playing against the Clippers, uh, Gary Trent Jr. So Wenyon Gabriel, you know, household name, Wenyon Gabriel, <laughs> a future like, all-star Wenyon Gabriel, <laughs> pokes the ball away from Paul George, you know, um, and uh, they both dive to the ground. They're scrambling. They're fighting for it. Wenyon gets a finger on it, pokes it up towards Gary, who's coming down the court. Gary jumps over. Paul George jumps over Paul George at a like full on sprint jumps over, takes a couple more steps and throws an alley-oop to Anthony Simons who puts it in like Blazers never make alley-oops. Uh, they rarely get fast breaks and he, he jumped over Paul George to do it. <laughs> it was just like, I was like, the season feet. could be over right now. <laughs> it's fine. Like that was like, I, they ultimately lost the game. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that that actually is it's a good segue since it involves Simons and Gary Trent Jr. leads me into my next question and it's to me it's surreal that I'm asking this given when we spoke I think it was last summer how Simons it felt like by the Blazers fan base was viewed as untouchable no one's obviously talking about Gary Trent Jr. at that point and then Zach Collins himself was held in high esteem and now I'm just curious of the three of them Simons College and and, and GTJ who is more important to Portland's future right now? So it's, it's really hard to say. It's a great question because I, I think it's hard to say. Maybe you think that there's an obvious answer. But when I saw that you had that question, it's, it's such a bummer about Zach Collins this whole year that yeah. we just don't know. It's just such a bummer. We've been told so many good things about him. We've been prepared for him to be able to do a lot of things that the Blazers need, you know, to be able to play defense, you know, on the perimeter and to be able to, you know, also shoot all these things that we want somebody to do, but we just haven't been able to, he hasn't been able to stay on the court long enough, you know, um, you know, Anthony Simons, my answer is Gary. Let's just get right to the point. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you, by the way. And I actually, I, it's, it feels more obvious to me, but I, I agree with you overall that it's definitely Gary. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, Anthony like has like, 
I think a very high ceiling. Um, but he's so young and like people, like I kind of forgot about that, got all caught up in, you know, the Blazers, you know, pushing him as like, you know, the, one of the really important, most important youngest pieces coming up this season. And like, I forgot that like, he didn't even have a year of college experience or even like overseas. Mm -hmm. Like he, you know, he was in a post-grad program, you know, at IMG Academy, which I'm sure in a lot of ways he took a lot out of, but just in terms of like reps on the NBA court, (laughs) it's going to, he's going to be behind in terms of just like development. So I think for now um, he just hasn't come along as fast, but I I mean, Gary is just, he, it's been a while since the Blazers have had somebody like him. Um, a lot of Blazer fans will compare him to Wesley Matthews, who was absolutely beloved because Wesley Matthews was absolutely never gave up, never surrendered, you know, was always playing 120%. And like when the Blazers made it to the, um, to the playoffs, you know, to play uh, LA and everyone's like, who's going to guard LeBron? I'm like, are you kidding me? Gary's going to guard LeBron. <laughs> Like, I was so excited for that, not because I necessarily thought Gary was going to shut LeBron down, but like every offensive or every possession, defensive possession against LeBron, like Gary learned something like he is constantly learning and improving. And I just thought saw that as like such a great experience for him in terms of like his long term development as a defensive player, Mm -hmm. because we know that he can make shots. Uh, Wesley Matthews, his. He still plays that hard after his Achilles injuries, too, which is amazing. And he actually did well defending Jimmy Butler in the postseason. But I would agree with you on Gary Trent Jr. uh, just because it feels like he plays more of a position of need for them at this point. They're always, to me, it feels like they're in the hunt for wings. And then one of the things that I think probably was underestimated with Simons, this might not be the situation for him to be properly developed just because you have CJ and Dame in front of him. And if he can't be a backup point guard, like that's where a majority of those, you know, backup backcourt minutes are, are going to go. If he can't be that player, like it's not, you know, his season was not good. Like he was just, his efficiency like plunged. And so it becomes so much harder than to juggle. Well, how do we let him go through it when we're trying to win, when he doesn't even necessarily bring us um, what we need most off the bench where, yeah, the, sh- the theoretical shot making is great. Like they also like one of the bigger reasons to play would be like, well, at least he could play backup point guard, which I think has become clear at least right now. That's just not something that he can do. Yeah. I, I felt that this year for him uh, to get an opportunity to just work on his shot, work on catch and shoot, work on just getting in the pace of the game, getting in the rhythm of the game and not having to depend on him to create for everybody. Like, learn to create for yourself, learn to, you know, catch it off of somebody else. But like, let's, let's go slowly. Let's not try to make him have to be able to do everything all at once. And then yeah, Zach Collins, season was a bummer. So he has that shoulder injury and I, they came off like a weird initial timetable. I remember four to six weeks and I dislocated my shoulder like a, a month or two before he did. And like, this is more than a year later. I still don't have the full range of motion back on it. And so I'm not going to compare myself to a professional athlete. I'm just going to say like, that has to be like an understatedly hard injury to come back from. And I I still remain very intrigued by him. He might have a case to be the answer to this question. If we had had a bigger sample this season, because if he's hitting threes, just because of all the optionality that he then gives you on defense, like, yeah, there's a case that that it's him. If he can give you backup five minutes, then he's going to play the four. Um, the thing I find fascinating is 
him and Yusuf Nurkic have still yet to play even 400 possessions together, like in total, just because of how like the timings worked out with the Nurkic injury, how little Collins was playing at first, and then you have the Collins injury this time. It's like that's still just a front court pairing that they don't, I won't even say know enough about that they really haven't had a chance to get a feel for. Mm-hmm. So that'll be interesting to see moving forward. That was the one observation for him that I feel like might be holding him back in this discussion is we just don't know what he would like, how him and Nurkic fit. Yeah. And I don't really know. I mean, when you say that you can kind of, you know, see what they're like, what is it that you see in him that you think that he would best compliment the Blazers? Cause I agree with like how he fits into the rotation, but like actually on the court, what he's supposed to do that I'm a little bit more like, I mean, shoot threes? I don't know. <laughs> so I was – the two things – one of the things I don't know that they've gone to enough, and it might be a matter of opportunity, is I really am intrigued by him playing, like, minutes at the five. Because, like, you then unlock these – and I know, like, Nurkic shoots some threes now, but if you unlock five out combinations with Dame and CJ on the floor, like, your offense is going to be volcanic, like, even more so than than normal. And so his three-point shooting at the beginning of the season was something that intrigued me before he got injured. It felt like he was going to take more of them, and he was hitting them. I think it only ended up being like 11 or 12 attempts in those first three games that he played. Like, he had hit them at like a close to 40% clip or whatever it was. And so that really intrigues me. But to have someone like that who, if he's hitting those threes, now all of a sudden you can play him with Nurkic because Zach Collins doesn't have any problem defending fours. Like, that. even in if you, like, I feel like power forward, I'm not a big fan of, like, typecasting positions now, but the four has become a glorified wing spot. And like Zach Collins is not a wing, but he can move with them. And if you're going to go up against, you want to call them small ball fours or just um, wing power forward, like whatever power wings, whatever, like he can keep up with them. And so if he's hitting threes and you can then have him on the court for his defense, because that that's what ends up being his like most proven commodity so far in the time that we've seen from him. I feel like that, I don't know if it completely changes the trajectory of the Blazers, but particularly looking at this season where they struggled most on defense, like that ends up being like absolutely monstrous for them to me. Yeah, I wish we could have seen him and uh, Nurkic alongside each other more for sure. Yeah, he's just kind of a big mystery to me. He's just a big question mark for me. But one thing I also do like about him is just kind of his he's got kind of an, an attitude that, you know, the Blazers have a lot of like super nice, you know, they have a lot of guys who aren't going to walk up and, you know, uh, yell on your face. <laughs> and, and Zach Collins will tell Clay Thompson exactly what he thinks of him. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of fun and not something that, you know, necessarily is, uh, what everybody else is known for. So just to have somebody who has that little extra, like he hates losing, he hates making mistakes. Um, that's kind of a, a fun thing. Um, let, I would just be curious to see what would happen if he ever tried to yell at Damian Lillard. <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, it's interesting, like watching the finals and watching like AD and LeBron, you know, get really animated with each other. Um, that's not something that you typically see. Although Trevor Ariza brought that a little bit for the brief time that, you know, we had him around. That's just kind of, that's just not really how, that's just not really how they operate. No, it's definitely not. The Blazers have, and I think this is actually another good lead into my next question. Mello saying at the end that he wants to come back to Portland is huge because I think like, even if uh, playing in certain markets clearly matters to players, but like, I feel like if you give, 
like he's the guy that if if you can trade for a big name soon to be free agent who might leave, if you get them on a team and Damian Lillard is there and you have them together for a season, that player's not going anywhere. I just can't imagine there were maybe he's definitely on my all run through a brick wall for him team. Like he'd be right at him and Kyle Lowry are two of the names that spring to mind with it. And so having Melo say that like about Damian Lillard is absolutely huge. And, but now I'm curious and I know I asked you this the first time and I'm just wondering if your perception last time we talked, I should say in April, I'm just wondering if your perception has changed looking at their free agents or could be free agents. You have Melo, Ariza salary is not guaranteed. Um, Hazonia and Rodney Hood have player options. I think Hood, after the Achilles injury, obviously picks his up. So maybe we throw him out of this discussion. And then Whiteside, uh, who do you view as sort of must keep, if any of those guys, um, for this team? So when I was thinking about that question, I had to bifurcate it. That's a little Easter egg for um, the Blazer fans. Um, that's one of Neil Olshay's uh, drinking words, like you drink when Neil Olshay says that. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I looked at it like, what did I want, and what did the team? What what does the team actually need? <laughs> um, so like for for like mellow. I would so like I did it in like hearts and basketball. So I put out of five hearts, I put four hearts for me personally <laughs> wanting Melo to return. But as far as like basketball reasons, like there's maybe like two out of five um, because like he he Damon CJ have been trying to get him for quite a while. They've been trying to talk him into coming to Portland for years. Like he's one of those people that has been in the discussion about coming to Portland for years. And I think when he came to Portland and had a really good experience, that's an excellent thing because now people will hear about it. And I think one of the things about playing with Damian Lillard, um, playing with Damian Lillard, like he seems like he's, he's been so consistent in like his interviews and everything that he says about wanting to win with his guys and not feeling like he's constantly looking to need to like, you know, I, I said that, you know, they've been trying to get mellow here, here for years, but Damien always has like been really focused on his team and the players that are on his team and wanting to make it, which is why he's always saying he doesn't want to go somewhere else to go chase a championship. Mm-hmm. He wants to do it under his terms um, on his thing. So anyway, your original question, it was like, who returns? Um, I think that, because Melo came, had a really good experience. It was what Damon CJ said it was going to be. And because uh, he found, you know, a place where uh, something that I think a lot of people weren't expecting, like he and Gary became really close and he became sort of a mentor to some of the younger players, which I think a lot of people weren't really expecting. Yeah. There was Um, like hints of that when he was leaving New York, like you could tell he really related to the younger players, which is definitely something I feel like he's still not known for, but as he's gotten older, it feels like he's done a better job of like sort of mentoring or at least relating or taking time out to, to like, you know, befriend the younger players. It it just seems like a good place where he could like finish things out on his terms. And like, if he really does want to be chasing a championship, it seems like staying with Portland and Damian Lillard is going to be more likely where you'll get closer to a championship than let's say returning to New York. Uh, (laughs) 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 So, um, you know, but I don't know like how much money, is a thing for him like because I know how much you're offered and respect is really important but also I know he's made a lot of money in this lifetime so I I don't know I would love to see 
him return. And I think he changed a lot of minds in Portland. And so I think people would really love him to, to come back. And there's like a, I do think people probably overrated him at points too, because he can still be a big problem for you on defense. But like, just looking at it, he averaged over 15 points per game and shot 38.5% from three. Like that is an objectively useful offensive player. He was screening for them too, which is something he's been reluctant to do his entire career. And I think they did a nice job of like letting him do like balance the melt, like the mellow being mellow stuff versus the Olympics mellow type shots where, yeah, he's firing a ton off the catch and yes, he's screening more, but they also allowed him to indulge on post-ups and his mid-range game. So I think he would be um, crazy to leave for them. I'd be concerned about like, it feels, you know, next season, does it make sense for him to be a starter though? Would be my question. And then how does he play coming off the bench? I think he would accept the role, but could he be one of those players where it's like the rhythm of starting is too important or he needs a lot of minutes to really get into a rhythm that won't be available if he's coming off the bench? I honestly don't know. That would be the one thing for the Blazers that, that would give me pause there. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, and another nice thing about Mello is somebody with, you know, the years of experience that he has, he just, you don't have to worry about him on the floor. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to worry about, you know, some players require a little more concentration from everybody else when they enter the court because they need to be instructed a little more, told where to go. Um, it's not as natural to them, um, but at least on offense always natural to mellow and even you know he's been around long enough long enough that he knows the basics of what he's supposed to do for defense he might you know the what is it the the body the body is willing or whatever <laughs> or the mind is willing but the the body is getting up there a little bit and might be like one little step slower or whatever but um he just you know for a guy like damian lillard who's got a lot going on it's i think it was nice to have somebody that you just don't have to worry about like Mello knows what he's supposed to do. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Um, but you were getting into, I, I interrupted you, so I apologize. But um, the the other free agents or could be, what yeah. are your thoughts on those? I mean, Ariza, like to me, I don't feel like a, a strong pull. Like I don't think, I don't think this team needs to get older. Um, I think it was that, you know, having Mello and Ariza during the season um, was nice because again, they were guys who had a lot of experience and there were other guys who were getting a lot of playing time who didn't have as much experience. So you didn't have to worry about them. They knew what they were supposed to do, but I'm concerned about, um, the future of this team. And I don't think they need to get older. I don't think they need to like keep around as many vets as like Mello and Ariza. Uh-huh. I mean, they have Damon and CJ, they have years. They, those two guys are vets, <laughs> you know? Um, I don't, I don't think they need him as much, um, so for me, like him returning is pretty low on the priority, but I also understand that, you know, uh, his contract might be, um, uh, useful, you know, like keeping him around, it's like 12.8, which is like a little more than the MLE. So like if they're trying to find a player who's a little bit, um, you know, demanding a little bit higher, um, return then you know he's around for that mm-hmm. if they need to move him um Hazonia I would, he's he's kind of a polar I wouldn't even say polarizing figure people have he, a pretty strong opinion of him he is a superstar between the ears is how I've always referred to him <laughs> you know 
Hazonia is one of those players who, uh, like, the Blazers need guys who can be uh, do short spurts of handling the ball, um, who are not guards, you know, mm-hmm. who are uh, wings who can create their own shot or who can create for others if they need to. And I think that that's what they're hoping Hazonia. I I believe that Hazonia will be with the team next year, um, and. I'm trying real hard to be his number one fan because he doesn't have a lot. And I really think that that somebody's got to be out there supporting him. Um, But, you know, maybe he'll, maybe he'll get into a really good rhythm next year and have a great year. Uh, we could. I think everyone's been waiting for Mario Hazonia to have a great year since he was drafted fifth overall, like almost a decade ago at this point. I think if everybody else is playing really well, if they keep Hood and he's playing really well, if Gary continues on the trajectory that he's been on, if Anthony gets more playing time and Hazonia is like deeper in the bench and uh, he's not relied on, it's like, oh God, we don't have anybody. Mario really needs to carry us for this, you know, 20 minutes a game. I think that um, they'll be in, in better shape if if it's not like totally necessary that if he's like a nice to have in terms of, right. you know. I mean, look, the 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 ball handling market this summer too in free agency is like pretty damn bad. So like, as you said, Rizonia just being at least confident enough to handle the ball, especially as a non-guard, that does make him like a functional asset in some way, even though that confidence is also going to lead to plenty of missed shots. Yeah. You know, never a dull moment. I'm somebody who likes chaos and, um, you know, it, it, it can be real exciting and he's also not afraid. And, you know, sometimes like sometimes when you're watching a player who hesitates, that's almost as tough as watching a player who just doesn't think. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, it's a balance, right? Yeah. Um, Hood, I, I'm in, I am hope I'm expecting that Hood will stay because, um, you know, coming off an injury, it would be like, you know, pretty, uh, pretty risky to like not take his um player he has a player option right yep yeah um it would be pretty risky to not take that i think that i know i've built up in my mind like rodney like the great rodney hood (laughs) because like i know he played you know for like a month or so this season but really like my lasting image of rodney hood is like leaping up off the bench in the fourth overtime against denver and like sinking it and like you know basically helping win the game Uh Um, and i think like you know the folklore of the great rodney hood has in my mind just grown and grown and grown so i have like really high expectations which i'm trying to temper because he's a guy coming back from an achilles injury but I believe that that Portland will um, will have him, and you know he was playing great. Shot almost fifty percent from three for a quarter of the season. Like, like twenty one games isn't a lot, but it's also a quarter of the season. It's not not a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's a great right. way to put it. It's not not a lot. I mean, imagine if like Anthony had been playing like you know had that, we'd all be like super excited. So. Yeah, I'm trying to like just I'm just trying to like what I'm getting as I'm trying to temper my expectations, but I believe that Rodney Hood will come back and I'm hoping for really good things for him. Um Whiteside, I um I think that um Portland probably won't um I I wish him well in a place where he can thrive. And I I think that um that might be a different team. That might be a different league. <laughs> yeah, I don't think um, I, you know, when Portland signed him to me, that was kind of like, 
a signal that last season was just like, we're just going to hold on. We yeah. just need to hold on until Nurkic comes back because they signed this guy with a really big contract in the last year of his really big contract. And to me, that was like, we're going to, we're just going to make it through this year. And then, you know, you're going to go on your way and we're going to be back to what we had. Um, so, um, and I, I, I think I agree with you on everything. The one I just don't have a feel for uh, would probably be the Trevor Ariza thing. I default to him being back for what, what you outlaid and it, it um, aligns with the question I have coming up just because his contract, they don't have a lot of like salary filler, expendable salary filler. Cause you have CJ Dame and Nurkic who make real money that you can use in a trade, but you're not looking to trade any of them. And so having that 12.8 million becomes useful in that way. So he's the one I don't have a feel for, but so my next question is, is it feels like every year it's wing depth that the, the Blazers need the most. And yet, if you're going to have Ariza back, you have Gary Trent Jr. now. I feel like there's a pretty good chance Melo comes back. And I know he's coming off an Achilles injury, but you have Rodney Hood. And like he's, an, he's certainly an offensive asset, at least someone you could move around positionally, defensively. And maybe now he might actually be, I think the biggest knock against him is he couldn't handle the bigger forwards. But I'm assuming now he'll be, uh, he'll... T- he'll practice like, or train himself more in a way where he has to do those coverages because you're not going to want him chasing around smaller guys after an Achilles injury. So you have those guys now. And so I'm all of a sudden wondering like, is wing not the Blazers biggest need and they actually need a backup big instead more this off season. I'm just curious what you think. I think they need talent in whatever (laughs) position. I mean, because and what I mean about that is like young, like I'm thinking about the future again. Like Damon CJ, as much as I wish time could go backwards, are not getting younger. And we have to think like five years down the road, like who's going to be um, carrying the team when they're getting older. Um, and so I just I think that they need whoever they can find who is young and has the most talent at whatever position, although probably not point guard. Um, but you know, maybe even center, I'm a little nervous about like, um, you know, we want Yusuf Nurkic to, you know, understand that he's like, he and Dame, like he's the future (laughs) of the franchise. He's still quite young. Mm -hmm. Um, but we saw, you know, Denver and that it was kind of difficult when he was playing with somebody else who was also super talented. Um, but I also think that with, um, you know, other teams very successfully putting in two big guys at the same time, other teams very successfully right. playing with no big guys. I think that it, it, it maybe isn't such a concern, but I just think they need to find whoever they can get who's the most talented at whatever position and they'll make it work. Cause everybody always needs wings, right? Like yeah, is that's there a the... team that doesn't need wings? Uh, maybe Boston, <laughs> maybe, maybe. It I just know. seems like everybody could always use, could always use wings and that would be great but like limiting it to wings i think is too limited if they could find somebody who is a super young talented guard who can play shooting guard and point guard like that would be awesome to move into that rotation yeah it does feel like more so than it should be because you do have collins and Nurkic, but after the injury from Nurkic and then even the injury from collins and then really just not having a huge sample with him at the five anyway it does feel like another backup big um, is a higher priority than it than it should be. Looking at them on paper, um, luckily 
I wouldn't bring us on Whiteside back if I were them. And I think I told you on the last podcast, I even went on um, your podcast at one point and told you and um, Danny that I'm just, I know Hassan Whiteside's numbers have been pretty good this year. I hate watching him play basketball and I just don't think he helps them. Uh, so they might have like, I, 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 sh- I think they can get like a solid backup big man for relatively cheap. And what's helping them, I know most of the teams in the league have the non-taxpayer mid-level exception, which will be somewhere between nine and $9.7 million, we think. But at the same time, like that's, you know, as a tax team, like this year, I believe they were a tax team. I actually should have brought up my sheets before I said that. Um, no, they weren't, but they were close. But like having the, or no, I'm looking at the wrong team. Um, they, they were not a, they were a tax team. So like having the non-taxpayer mid-level exception is kind of a luxury they didn't have this past year. And so maybe you can get a better player for that. And I'm wondering if you've given any thought to whether it's a wing, a guard, a big, any names in free agency that just kind of intrigue you that could fall within their price range. Um, I mean, I guess I did look more towards taller players because <laughs> I've, I've been around long enough to, you know, that I've, I've absorbed enough of the conversation about Dame and CJ not being large guards and, you know, how it helps to have, you know, taller players, um, on the, on the court with them. Um, so when I, when I look for, uh, free, I'm like really bad at like free agent, like guessing. Um, I tend to more just like react to whoever they, they get, but, um, that just means that you're smart because everyone who <laughs> speculates is pulling stuff it's out just of You never right? know. As soon as I think I know something, it goes like right out the window. Like just, this is, you know, here's the exact person that they need. And then I don't know, but I always look at like, like Blazers, I don't know if other teams do this as much, but Blazers often get somebody that has already been in the conversation. And like, we thought that they were getting, and you know, like suddenly three years later, we do have Trevor Ariza, like Melo, somebody they've been talking about for years. Like Hassan Whiteside is somebody who was in the conversation. Like it happens over and over and over again. So I was trying to think about players that were in the conversation for the Blazers um, who filled a need. And then also like, had um blazers usually um interact a lot with like a few teams like orlando uh sacramento cleveland denver are like a lot of players have been through those systems who eventually end up in portland so anyway with all those parameters i was looking and i found somebody who actually actually was a blazer for like moments and that was Rondé hollis jefferson um (laughs) I remember I was so excited when they drafted him because he was wearing like these red plaid pants and I was like, sweet. And then he immediately got traded for Mason Plumlee and I think the rights to Pat Connaughton. But he fits the description of somebody who like has been associated with Portland before. Um, He was in Toronto and Orlando. So Orlando is one of those teams that Portland has had a lot of um, players come from. And I think, I think he might fit the bill. Like when I was reading up about him, he reminded me a little bit of Al Farouk Aminu because uh, defense, but not a great three point shooter. But when chief came, he got better. What do you think? Um, so <laughs> Ronnie Hollis Jefferson, I feel like out, he makes Al Farouk Aminu look like Stephen Curry when it comes to shooting. So like, he, there's just, <laughs> There's like zero feel for there. But when you, so when you first, you had mentioned his name to me already. And I was like, I get it defensively, but like, like, does it work offensively? But so I was just looking into some of the stuff he did for Toronto this year. One, um, his offensive rebounding was a thing. And so like, that's, if you can have that from a wing type player or someone who you want to play as a small ball five, like that's, that's enormous. Um, And that's how they were using him. 
the other thing, so B-Ball Index's Christian Narshu has this um, defensive versatility uh, index where just based on the the amount of time spent guarding all five positions, he, he gives a versatility rating. And among every single player in the league uh, who logged or was on the floor for at least 500 possessions, which... Um, for our listeners' context sake, like that's not a lot. Like 500 possessions is not a lot. So that's the baseline. He graded out as the league's most versatile defender. Um, the caveat there is that James Harden was second. So that speaks to how <laughs> that that speaks to how like when teams are moving around players to hide them, that their versatility rating can go up. But yeah. Ronnie Hollis Jefferson is actually a pretty good defender. So that's not someone I would use a chunk of the mid-level on. But after the season that he had in Toronto, um, and then even the stuff he showed when he was in Brooklyn, like the ball handling never really worked out. And then he had one good mid-range shooting season there, I think. If you can get him for just relatively cheap, I absolutely think that that's something you look at because defense was a huge issue with them. And look, if you're going to bring back Melo, if you're going to have Rodney Hood coming off an Achilles injury, and if you're thinking about not bringing Trevor Ariza back, you sure as hell need guys who can defend. And Ronnie Hollis Jefferson falls into that category, and he doesn't break the bank. And I think, look, we could talk about someone like Jay Crowder, I think, would be spectacular for this team. The reality is, though, that the Blazers have the same amount of money to offer as, I'm going to say, 25 other teams. And (laughs) the odds of them getting the the higher-profile players who might fall in their price range are pretty slim. And so thinking outside the box, and that's what I would call RHJs, I think that's a great suggestion. So that's like not someone I ever would have considered, but I actually, upon thinking about it more, I think that was a really smart suggestion. And so that would be a guy that I think there would still be a problem on offense. But if you can get him to maybe set more screens like you did with Mello and he's rolling, maybe that's a way to to kind of use him. So I think that was a pretty good find. And again, he's someone I'll stress that I just don't think cost them that much money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, Blazers really struggled, like maybe even to the tune of struggled the most <laughs> in terms of defending the three point shooting. I mean, like it was, it was not good all season. And then I felt like in the, uh, bubble, it just got even more pronounced. It was like, whatever, like the three point shooting equivalent of the layup line is like, you know, <laughs> It's like shooting practice or like pregame shootout or whatever. Um, and I think they really, really missed Al Farouk Aminu and uh, Mo Harkless. And they were not like the best, and they, but they got progressively better. And when the Blazers reset a bunch of their personnel this year, I think they like regressed a lot because I think that the style of defense that they played um, – predicates a lot on communication and knowing each other and it was like a bunch of new people and it took them a few years to get accustomed to it and so you know I'm thinking about people like who are sort of those under the radar guys who are smart at defense can learn the system and then you know suddenly maybe if they find themselves you know alongside better offensive players just maybe like absorb some of that (laughs) Um, so two names that stand out to me for the Blazers and, uh, maybe I'm not, I'm curious whether you've thought about them. If you, if you don't know enough about them, but like, um, they're both restricted free agents, which would be the issue. So you only have the mid-level, but they're restricted free agents that I do not think are going to get paid. Um, Tory Craig from Denver, very similar in the sense that, uh, he probably makes Al Farouk Aminu not look like Stephen Curry, but maybe like, I don't know, like who's a semi good shooter to throw in there. Like he makes, he makes... I don't even have a good comparison right now, but maybe like a Wayne Ellington, basically. Like he makes 
Alfred Camino looked like Wayne Ellington or something. So, but he's really good defensively. Like, and he, he's someone that you can throw at number one options and Denver has to look at, you know, Plumlee's a free agent. Uh, Paul Millsap's a free agent. Jeremy Grant's going to be a free agent. And so I feel like he's someone who might fall through the cracks. They have to think about Monte Morris's next deal, whether they want to keep him. I think he'd be a really good fit in Portland. And then I thought about Derek Jones Jr., uh, who's not a restricted free agent, but he just hustles his ass off on defense and can get out in transition. But the Heat can't really get him going on offense, and they're one of the best teams in the league at generating space. So I don't know that maybe because Dame is Dame, it helps him. And so then I looked at um, Wes Awundu from Orlando, restricted free agent, a guy who's like sneaky, was sneaky okay at shooting this year, has shown he can actually dribble. And you were just talking about how you'd like to see some non-guards on this team dribble. Uh, and then he could be moved around defensively too. And you saying Grande Hollis Jefferson is actually what inspired me to look along these lines is like, I feel like the Blazers need to do, um, yes, they might have the money to, to get someone that's a little bit more of a known commodity, but because of the competition they're going to face for some of these free agents and because of how shallow the wing market is in general, I think you have to get a little bit creative and Rondé Hollis Jefferson falls along that lines. And I would think like a, a Wes Awandu or a Tory Craig would, would fall there too, because they need strong defensive presences, just, just period. And I think all three of those guys really, really bring that. And then Derek Jones Jr. would as well. I just, I'd be more worried about his offensive fit than I am for all of the other three, basically. I, I really, I like the suggestions and I went and I looked up like who's Tory Craig's agent. Cause I told you that's like one of the things that I always look at and Tory Craig, um, Wes Awundu, um, all have they have the same agent as uh Myers Leonard has um and I just I I feel like relationships are so important in terms of both being able to make deals but also in terms of understanding which players are the best fit because if you know if we're just like shopping for whoever's game we like um but we don't know whether or not they're going to fit in, you know, basketball wise or just like personality wise, um, you know, talking to those teams that we regularly, you know, that the Blazers are regularly making deals with. I feel like they must know, like, because it's very rare that somebody comes to Portland that doesn't like fit in and um, have a good season there. And then often when they leave, they, you know, kind of disappear. Um so that is all to say that I think that the names that you've all brought up are people that are like more likely to come to Portland than some of the names that might just be tossed out because they're like really good players. <laughs> and like, wouldn't it be great if Portland got them? Right. I think they're very, I think they're practical uh, names. I like uh, Tory Craig. I'm going to think about that one. Um, and then at, at Biggs, only really two, there are so many options and, like based on how the Blazers play, I feel like they could fit a bunch of like what they're looking for in a backup anyway, because they made it work with Hassan Whiteside. So you don't necessarily need a big that's going to pop. But um, two names that stood out is Nerlens Noel, with I don't think he'll go back to Oklahoma City, and he was really he might have been like one of the five best or one of the three best backup centers this year. Feels like he'd give them a strong defensive presence. Um, and then the other name that I don't think, at least for our listeners, that they're going to know enough about. Uh, Chris Boucher in Toronto, my guess would be he's restricted as well, but I don't know what they're doing. They might want to preserve cap space for 2021. And so maybe some chunk of the mid-level is enough to get him. I'll just say that he is a monster. Um, I won't say a disciplined monster on defense, but he can really wreak havoc around the rim. And he's, he showed some stretch 
to his game as well. So he gives you a rim roller who might also be able to space the floor. And if he's cheap enough, that would be a, a backup big, or maybe even someone you're willing to play alongside Nurkic if you're not, you know, playing Melo or if he doesn't come back for some reason. Uh, those are I can't I have zero read on the big man market because free agency is so difficult to gauge this year, and then uh, bigs are just like they're constantly getting squeezed anyway. So I don't know who's going to get paid, who's not going to get paid, and so I have zero confidence in any of this. But those are two names that I think would be interesting for Portland. Yeah, Chris Boucher, I think, went to U of O, so people around here probably um, know about him. Um, but one one blazer that we haven't talked about um, who might kind of also – Wenyan Gabriel is um, somebody that I think the Blazers really liked a lot. Uh, he's going to be a free agent, so, like, the Blazers are, I don't think, um, you know – I don't know what they're going to do uh, with Wenyan Gabriel, but he was somebody that brought a lot of energy to the floor, had no fear, super long arms. Like he fouled like every time, you know, he took every Like he was breath. getting paid by the foul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but just fantastic energy. I mean, like he played LeBron and like no fear, uh, no hesitation. If he could get the fouling uh, figured out, I think he's somebody that they might like to bring back um yeah so i think um it's gonna blazers never bring in who anybody expects so just by like the act of mentioning all of these players we probably pretty much guarantee it won't be any of them (laughs) so it'll be interesting next time we talk to find out who it actually is (laughs) um the sentimentalist in me hopes they at least give a call to wesley matthews and see if he wants to come back i don't know if he brings exactly what they need defensively like because they might need someone to cover the bigger forwards but like i would be the sent again the sentimentalist in me Give me the nostalgia, bring back Wesley Matthews. And with the postseason he had looking at his defense, like I, he would certainly help the Blazers. Yeah, I think people would be thrilled for a return of Wesley Matthews. He was so beloved here. Everybody loved Wesley Matthews and were so disappointed when the Blazers didn't retain him. Um, and I think he may have been disappointed that the Blazers didn't retain him, so he may not want to come back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the first time he, or, and the only time in his career he got like paid, paid. Um, he should just be happy he didn't wind up on the Kings like he was supposed to do at first. He he dodged a terrible situation there. So this question I have for you, I try and I've tried to remain level-headed about the Blazers. I've never been aboard the break up the CJ and Damian Lillard train. And I think the fact that we haven't really talked about them on this podcast just speaks to how entrenched they are. And then particularly after this season, how much sense it would not make to even consider moving um, CJ McCollum. And you... You know, you said at the top of the podcast, I believe, where you alluded to their ages now as they're getting up there. You factor in Nurkic. This team's window is now, and I know they've taken sort of the more restrained approach when it comes to trade specifically and just what they do over the offseason. I think I'm at the point where I'm ready to say, like, there needs to be a home run swing. You have the Trevor Ariza salary. You have future first, this year's first. You have, you know, Rodney Hood's expiring salary if you need more matching. And then, like, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm out on Simons, but, like, I would rather trade him and try and sell, like, medium um, because maybe the intrigue is still there because teams know what he can do off the dribble as a scorer, and that stuff is always going to have sway. Even Zach Collins is someone that I just don't view as essential to this team, as I think I did a year ago. And so I'm looking at the Blazers and thinking L- – Viewing the Western Conference, how it's going, where Damian Lillard and CJ and even Nurkic are at in their careers, 
I they need to serve for like a you're not going to get a star with that package, but at the same time, like if you unload the asset clip, I guess would be the best way for me to phrase it. I'm trying to enter the Drew Holiday or the Victor Oladipo discussions this summer, insofar as those are even like a a thing. Or if that can get you into like a Daniel Gallinari sign and trade, like I'm exploring it because now feels like the time where the Blazers need to strike in a in a bigger way than they have in seasons and off seasons past. I'm wondering how you feel about that take. Is it too like is it too spicy, stupid national person coming helicoptering in and saying the Blazers need to do something drastic? I mean, I think it's perfectly understandable. It's what fuels the off season, right? Is like dreaming <laughs> about what might happen. And there's like, we don't know what could happen. A million different things could happen. But I, I honestly don't think that the Blazers are going to do um, a big swing this summer because they're getting so many people back that they didn't have last year. And um, I know that's not like super exciting. And again, now that I've said it, that completely makes it there unlikely that it's going to happen. <laughs> Giannis um, to but, Portland confirmed because Tara said that they're not going to do anything this summer. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, they're going to be thrilled to have Yusuf back. You know, if Zach comes back healthy and if, um, if Rodney hood comes back, they're going to have the team that they wanted to have, you know, last year. Uh, so, you know, again, I'm just I'm thinking about about the future, like Damon, CJ, like you said, like we haven't even talked to them because about them much because we just assume that they're going to say Damian Lillard just bought a Toyota sh- dealership, you know, nearby. So he's going to he's know, obviously <laughs> retiring in Portland. Like, I know I, I made a horrible joke, which I felt so guilty about. And I don't know how many people got it, but that I was hoping that Damian Lillard would retire with more uh, dealerships than Carl Malone. But um, <laughs> I know, isn't that terrible? But I just went with it. Um, um, anything that throws shade at Carl Malone is objectively <laughs> awesome. So I know, but it doesn't speak for very well of Damien because Carl Malone didn't have a championship. Um, and Damien's going to get one, uh, I believe. Anyway. I, you I do just... bring up an interesting point, I think, though, because they can spin Hood and Nurkic as almost their offseason additions just because you didn't have them for a large chunk of this year. And so that, I think that's the something that I probably haven't considered enough. Um, I guess it's just both of them are working their way back from huge injuries still, which would make me pause, but you're, I think you're absolutely right. Like because you had such a small sample of both, like those can be your off season additions. And look, you could even argue, we know this is the version of Gary Trent jr. We have like, here's another basically addition that we just didn't weren't necessarily beginning last season with. So much of what Stotts' teams in the past have, you know, depended on to make them outperform expectations has been continuity. Like just when you think things aren't going to well, going to, you know, go well, it turns out that the amount of time that they've spent together, you know, it pays off. And, you know, it's like every like three years or so, there's kind of like a little turnover and it takes them a little while to get into the groove because so much of like the way that they play depends on knowing what each other's going to do. And I think that's why it was hard. Like last year with Hassan Whiteside, even though he was putting up like massive numbers, um, I don't think that he fit into the flow of the offense in the same way as other people did. So like, they weren't quite sure like what he was going to do. And uh, I just think that having the players back who've had at least a little bit of time, if not all together, I just don't think that they disrupt that right now. I, I think you're right. 
I'm just I'm I, this is like the first time in quite some time that I'm I'm wondering if it's going to be the right decision, and that's going to be interesting to play out because I look at the Western Conference like competitive landscape right now, and I, I think I would loop the Blazers into just being a guaranteed playoff team. But then I'm also just not sure because I'm like, what if the Pelicans are better and the Suns are better? The Warriors are back. But then also, I think the Grizzlies are going to be worse, personally. The Thunder. <gasps> the Thunder. Really? Yeah, they're. I think they outperformed the talent on their roster and like getting what they got from Dylan Brooks before his extension versus after the extension. Yeah. Definitely worries me. If you have Justice Winslow healthy, that's definitely different i just i think there's a chance they get lost amid the tumult of the the western conference um we also know the thunder they look like they're trying to be worse like that we don't i don't really know what's happening over there so that helps portland um but i'm i'm still like mildly concerned that there's a chance they wouldn't make the playoffs uh but i do have to also try and remind myself like well they were able to like go up against terrible odds in the play um in the bubble and they made the playoffs anyway so it's 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 more of a tug of war for me this offseason with the Blazers than in years past. I do absolutely 100% agree with you that I don't think they're going to do anything. If I was Olshelly this summer, I would absolutely try and do something major. Without That doesn't include trading my top three players. And it might be, I don't know, it might be that they're always trying, but everybody just you know digs in their feet and says, unless you give me one of your top three players, we're not talking. Right. So, and I mean, look, Dame is just off, off limits, off limits. Like, that just can't even be a... Th- a starter, and I don't think you can ever approximate um, the value of CJ McCollum in a trade. Like he feels more like a player you would deal if you were looking to divest and rebuild. I don't know that he's someone who's going to help get you a star, so you keep him because he's just so much more valuable to you as an actual player. Um, and look, Nurkic is—I know he's dealing with coming off that injury, but like his contract from a team perspective on a starting center who does what he does, it's, it's still really good. And so unless you're just out on him being the player that he was, I don't know why you look at moving him either. And he just, he just showed like how important he is to making that whole offense go, you know, when he came back just immediately, suddenly, you know, Damien had all these new options or it was like all sh- these old, old and there options were short back. rolls again. It was like, Oh my God, there are short rolls again. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like, um, yeah. And also one of the things I really want the Blazers to get, whether or not it's through free agency or trade or just internal growth, I want a big man who can hold on to the ball after he gets the rebound. Cause there was just like an epidemic of them losing the ball after they like went to all this work to get this rebound. And then it just like slips out of their hands. So that is what, that is my hope and dream for next year is that our big men can hold onto the ball after they get a rebound. <laughs> they need to stop like serving popcorn before every meal or whatever it is that they do. Or coating but, the ball in Crisco or soaking their fingers in Crisco. Exactly. Or they go to all this work to get these rebounds and then they turn around and just goes flip right out of their hands. So I think if they get that under control, there's an extra, you know, two, two and a half points per game. <laughs> My final question to you is what's the most undercovered aspect of this team moving forward right now, or the biggest misconception about them on a national level, or what's just something you want to talk about that I being a terrible podcast host did not ask you about. <laughs> well, I actually want to talk about non-blazer stuff for a minute. Cause I'm really curious about what you thought about the bubble experience. And like, I apologize if you've gotten into this in detail on other podcasts with other guests, but I'm really curious about like what, 
elements of the bubble experience did you like and think worked really well and like would maybe even love to see carried into the future? And were there anything about it where you're like, that did not work at all? Um, I don't know that anything was a fundamental failure for the bubble. I just, um, I don't know if you could do like a setup like this again. And so my concern is like, they're talking about for next season, they're going to postpone it as long as possible because they want fans back in the stands. We're just seeing like what's happening with um, the NFL right now as we record this, where you know it's not fan related, but because you're having these teams travel again, we saw it with MLB already. I feel like that just opens up the floodgates for something else. And so even if you were to play an empty arena, still, I'm I'm wondering how much it works. Like the pandemic could be in a different state. Like by the time we um, the NBA actually starts up, but I think knowing how it's gone, like we're not going to be that much better off. But then the challenge becomes you can't do this again over a full season. Like this was, you saw it great on players and they're there for, you know, three, four months tops, whatever it's going to end up being. And I totally, I totally understand that. So then how do you go about making next season actually safe without making more concessions than you did with this bubble? Like, because this bubble was effective. Like they're, they've done it. Like they've, they've done it. It was a success. Um, I don't know at what emotional cost that came with for certain players and and their families. And I don't want to downplay that, but at the product of basketball, it was a success, a success, excuse me. I was also pleasantly surprised at just how high the level of play was like even right off the bat. Like, yeah, there were some ugly games. Like there were a lot of fouls and it seemed like the referees could have used some preseason games under their belts, but like they, they were exciting and the Blazers were responsible for a large portion of those exciting games. So um, that's what, that's just where I land on the bubble is that I was one of the people that was skeptical of it. And so I was clearly wrong about that. I just don't know how it informs what you do for next season, because I would right now say it's probably a mistake um, to get back to bringing fans in. I don't care if it's partial capacity, a third, 10%. I don't know that you could go that route, but at the same time, the bigger problem might just be you're introducing travel into the equation and that's going to become a big issue because you can't ask these players to sequester themselves for longer than they have now. This was a huge undertaking. And I know there's been talk about, well, do you do like a series of bubbles where it's like two months on one month off? And I'm like, well, how does that work? Does a season take like a year to complete? Do you just shorten it a a great deal? So I'm just curious as to how the bubble ends up informing what they do next season. One thing I've loved about the bubble, though, is the social media content from the players. Like, I don't know if you checked out Matisse Thibel's YouTube channel at all behind the bubble. That was absolutely fantastic. Um, It felt like stuff was more personal in the bubble, too. Like, look at Dame and CJ after leaving the bubble, just trolling Patrick Beverly afterwards. Like, if it felt like the personal rivalries that are kind of sparse to begin with, but that we would have gotten in the postseason anyway, they took on a different life because of the bubble, maybe because these players were just closer together. Like they were in the same hotels or just, they weren't leaving the grounds. So I absolutely loved that aspect of it. Yeah, I guess um, I was also kind of thinking like, you know, if there was no pandemic, like in a perfect world, like what things, um, you know, do you think really would be cool to continue on? Like, I mean, there's some simple things, like there were some new camera angles, that I liked some that I didn't, but there were some more that were like, um, as if they were like from the sidelines, like in that camera that goes up. And I really liked that. Um, you know, I think part of the reason that the level of play was really good is because there wasn't so much travel. So like, how hard would it be for people to like, maybe 
when Portland goes to play Houston, instead of playing him once, flying home, playing again later, go to Houston and play too. Like, you know, baseball does long series. Like maybe the Western Conference could like, you know, do that and, you know, reduce travel a little bit. I don't know how hard that would be to schedule, but I, everything else is hard. They can figure that out. Right. Um, that's a good point. Um, I do think they missed an opportunity with mic'd up access like let's get a little bit more real with what's going on during the games i don't want to hear a coach talk about how we need to play harder or remain focused <laughs> like let's get some more substance to it and you know what have a separate feed during the a real season where there's other stuff on television you can make that available online and just make it viewer discretion advised and let's <laughs> hear everything that's going on on the court like i It'll never happen, but I still feel like we could have gotten more access to what the players were saying during the games. Um, This cannot translate to the bubble, but it's also to your point. I like that travel idea where it's like West versus East Coast. Like, can they just play best of two? Like, if you're going to play these teams twice, like, just run them. And look, you could even do that with intra-conference play, where if you're going to play a team three or four times, uh, line them up. Make Make it just a bunch of mini three and four game series. Uh, and then we get to see adjustments like from each team. That might be an interesting angle no one's really considered. The one thing that I think I'm going to miss is I feel like we've gotten more eruptions from role players because there aren't fans there. And that's been like a, I feel like there have been pieces written and studies done where like being on the road in front of fans actually does can hurt role players when you get to the postseason. And so I'm, I'm like, I don't want to say there shouldn't be fans at games because eventually when there can be, it, there absolutely should be. But if we don't have fans at games next season, like I'm kind of going to be okay with it just because of what we saw from like, like, I don't know if a Tyler hero happens in the playoffs if you're traveling and if you're playing in front of a bunch of fans would be my main point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you, you bring up a, a really, a, a good point. I mean, it's just a different experience. You know, I liked the fact that they had more room around the court because I'm always like so worried that someone's going to get really hurt, like falling on a fan or whatever. (laughs) Um, And I liked I just I really liked that they had that much more space to operate in um, and that like they had more room in their uh, bench area. Although I think if they're going to have that little wall, they need to like make (laughs) like I play indoor soccer and indoor soccer like you're not it's like a foul if you jump over the wall. It's just like a whole (laughs) extra like little thing. So I'm like, I think they like just one more thing to think about. I was like, no, you can't jump over the wall. Um, I also really (laughs) liked for some reason I love the coaches like not wearing suits and wearing like all matching outfits. I love that. That I don't know why. I just think it's so fun. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, they shouldn't have to, they shouldn't have to wear suits. Like that's such a, I don't, I don't know why. Hopefully that's something they take away from it. I'm what do you, how do you feel about the, the thicker baselines? It feels like players have been stepping on them more and like the court is not smaller. Is it just because it's like a bigger target built back? I don't know. I actually like the look of it, but like, it seems like we've gotten more, Oh, they, they ran out of bounds calls than we do normally. <laughs> it was really confusing to get used to. Cause I was just like, which is the out, you know, like, <laughs> is it like the line is so big. Is it even a line anymore? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, I thought that I thought the look of the court was cool. Um, I thought it was going to be a lot more like summer league in terms of like poor play at the beginning. But like you said, like that didn't last very long. And I think due to the lack of travel or whatever, I think they were able to like really, and also just like being super anxious to play the game. Um, 
the the level of play was really good. The other thing we kind of talked about it right at the beginning, um, and maybe this can like bring us full circle, um, is that uh, with the names on the back of the jerseys, I thought that um, at first I kind of was like, oh well, the players didn't re- like. Did they really get to even like? Um, or the phrases on the back of the jerseys. Did they really even get to choose? The, how many options did they have? Um, and I just thought it was going to seem gimmicky, but I'm still reading every single one of those guys' phrases on the back of their jersey, and I'm thinking about it. And it goes back to like how much um, the bubble has given us a time to like really think about things in addition to just enjoying the game of basketball. And so I really liked the addition of the phrases on the back of the Jersey, whether or not they went about choosing them in the best way possible. But when I see like, you know, I am a man, like it makes me think about what that phrase means. And when I see black lives matter and I see, even when I see like group group economics, those all are things that I thought were going to fade into the background, but are still really visible to me, even though we're in the finals. I would be, I, that's a good point. And I'd probably view the stuff on the back of the jerseys as more of a authentic gesture from the league. If the players could have just done what they wanted without, you know, like nothing profane or racist on there, obviously, but had like, they limited it to 13 choices or whatever. But I do agree that it, uh, aside from it even being powerful to see like I am a man or um, say their name, say her name was also like group economics is, I don't think something that I like, I had a basic understanding of what it was, but as soon as it was like on Andre Godala's Jersey. And then I think I also saw it on a uh, Anthony Tolliver's Jersey. Like I went and like looked it up again. And then uh, I believe it was Michael Pina for GQ GQ wrote a fantastic piece on it. So there's stuff like that where I think it does actually bring awareness I just didn't like the limitations on it where like Jimmy mm-hmm. Butler didn't want to put even his name on his Jersey. Let that be an option. Like, I think mm-hmm. that stuff can matter too. So I'm, I'm totally with you there though. There was like the message is definitely getting across. Um, the only thing I think I'd have been uncomfortable about the situation is the way that people viewed some of the players who elected to wear nothing. Um, I think that LeBron James was one of them helped uh, because you know what he's done, but like the reactions to where like, Oh, so-and-so didn't like that, that Anthony Davis, didn't have anything on his jersey was news. Um, like it, I don't, I don't like that. Like not having a name inferred, like not having support or mm-hmm. whatever. And so maybe that's something they could clear up. But I, I would think like let's allow players more agency in choosing their messages. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's something that they could have easily. I, they, we could assume that they're going to learn from because so much of it had to just be like figured out, like on the fly and quickly, and like how are we going to do this? And like, okay, we'll just, you know, I think there's a you know, if they, which I believe they will do, if they want to truly go back and survey the players about everything that happened, they'll get some really, you know, good responses about things. And like, that's one of the things about the NBA is we know that they will listen to the players and they will do, they will do something about it. Uh, I am interested to see though, not something I really thought about, but I am now kind of interested to see like whether these messages hold into next season, because I think it's been proven. Um, and, you know, I talked with um, Christian Winfield of the New York Daily News had been covering the first like uh, wave of protests uh, after George Floyd. And I had mentioned to him, and I, I don't know how hollow it rang because I am just this white male, but it felt like something different this time where this wasn't just going to go back to normal where you could wait for it to subside. 
and it really hasn't. So this feels like this is still going to be at the fore of what we're talking about, of what's going on with the sport um, leading into next season. And so I remain intrigued as to what more things we're going to see and hear from players, whether they make more of a push to hold the, the, the team governors accountable, where it was the ringer published the piece about, you know, um, these team governors come out in support of their players, but a lot of them, most of them, you could maybe even argue their political contributions say something in, entirely different. And so this isn't going away. And I, I guess I would assume that the messages will still be a part of what they're doing next season, but maybe the players feel like it was sort of like a muted effort. So I, I am kind of intrigued now to see what becomes of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but unless you have anything else, I have run out of Blazers questions for you. I appreciate you giving me so much of your time as usual. No, I think, I mean, I could talk about the Blazers forever, but we all do have lives to get back to. <laughs> I'll save some more, some more of my, uh, I'll save some more of my hot takes to, uh, and ask you to invite me back another time someday, <laughs> which I will, I, I will definitely be doing. Um, so thank you for coming back on and I will be pestering you in the future. And, um, I guess we'll see when next season starts too. Like it was originally going to be the beginning of December. Now it's been at least January. A lot of people think it's going to spill into February. Probably it's, uh, we have no idea how long the off season is going to last, which is something that never, never happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where it's like, it's new territory. Um, it's yeah, it's, Real interesting, and it's it's interesting how things that we thought were absolutely never going to change and were sacred are totally malleable. Yep. <laughs> turns out we can change. Yeah, and it turns out, look, the intensity of the games are they're still going to be high even when fans aren't there. Like a lot of people yeah. talked about, like would teams roll over? They did not. So, um, but Tara, thank you so much again. I kept you as usual much longer than I had anticipated, but thank you for coming on, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Dan. It was great. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.